Hey guys, welcome to episode 147 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to wish you all a happy Valentine's Day. We are actually recording on Valentine's Day. Yes, happy Valentine's Day, guys. You know, it's actually really cool because this is like our Valentine's Day date and you guys are our third wheel. Our like massively huge third wheel. Exactly. And we appreciate <laughs> and love you. Yes. We're glad you're with us. So we're going to jump into our case today in just one second. But first, I would like to thank you all who left us a review. We appreciate every single one of you, no matter what platform you left it on or in whatever capacity you did. It really helps us get our name out there. And we just love to take the time at the beginning of the episode to say thank you for that. And if you would like two more episodes of the True Crime Couple podcast, because who wouldn't? It would be a great Valentine's Day gift. It would be. (laughs) You could join our Patreon at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We currently have 86 additional episodes there. And climbing. Yeah, weird. That's a pretty good catalog, I would say. And if you are new to Patreon, we will be thanking you personally at the end of this episode. Okay, so that's enough about the business end of it all. So, John, are you ready to hear something crazy? You already know my answer. (laughs) The Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation was alive with fireworks and celebration on the 4th of July, 2013. The 90-degree weather was cooling down into the 70s, while the Cheyenne people in Lame Deer, Montana, enjoyed food, cultural music, and dancing. The cool wind was coming in from the northeast and giving relief to those who had been partying in the street and cooking over fire grills. At such a happy time, a time of togetherness, one would not think to be on the lookout for danger. Those who lived on the reservation knew each other well, and they had been there for each other as a community. They had to be, because the outside world had all but abandoned them. But on that night, there was a killer in their midst. And a 21-year-old's mother, Hannah Harris, had no clue that they had zeroed in on her. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows, If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hannah Harris lived with her mother, Melinda Limberhand, and her sister Rose. They were surrounded by those who loved them and looked out for them. Within the reservation, there was an entire street filled with the family members of their father, and it was aptly named Harris Lane. July of 2013 was a very exciting time for the Limberhand-Harris family. Hannah, a 21-year-old, had just had a baby boy, who she named Jeremiah. And by July, he was 10 months old. Rose was planning on being married on July 5th, the day after the celebrations that they would be having on the 4th. Hannah had moved back in with her mother after she had given birth because the relationship that she'd been in with the father of her son was a difficult one. He had been from a neighboring tribe, and before and during the pregnancy, things had been abusive on his end. And Hannah didn't want an environment like that for herself or her son, so she chose to provide a better one. 
It had been the right choice because her family, nuclear and extended, embraced both her and Jeremiah. Her mother especially had been overjoyed. She had daughters and she really loved the fact that she was now going to have a grandson. So there was a boy to take care of. It was just an exciting new adventure for her. And Hannah especially loved being back at home, spending time not just with her mother and sister, but also her grandmother and all of her family on Harris Lane. One thing she loved to do in particular was tie sweetgrass with her grandmother while talking about her childhood and the childhood she now wanted for her son. So it was just a really not only supportive environment for her and her son, but it was a very loving one. Yeah, you know, it's nice to see like such a like a really well meshed like community and family because I mean, once again, I you know speak for myself, but I feel like um, you know, values are like really important and I feel like sometimes we lose that. So it's nice to be able to like sit down with like older people in your family and kind of like talk about the past, the present and the future. Like that's really cool. Yeah, I feel like as we get older, we respect the viewpoint of older generations just a little bit more. Because when you're younger and you're a kid, you don't want to hear anything because you know everything. Exactly. You blow it off. Right. Yeah. So I think it's probably really cool that she's now sharing the journey of motherhood, not only with her mother, but her grandmother. So all the generations are there together. And that's really awesome. It is. Hannah really embraced her new role as mom. She would do anything for Jeremiah. Her mother said that she would always put him in the car that she had bought in her because when she had Jeremiah, her mom wanted a safe way for Hannah to get around. So she gifted her a car and Hannah would drive Jeremiah around until he fell asleep and he loved sleeping in the car. So Hannah had been, of course, especially grateful for it and those moments that, you know, she got her son to sleep as new moms often feel. So Hannah, by all accounts of those who knew her, was larger than life. She was a character. She loved meeting people. She was happy and boisterous. She was a good sister, a good daughter, and she was falling in love with being a mother. She was truly at the pinnacle of her life. So that brings us to July 3rd, when everyone on the reservation was preparing for the 4th of July celebrations that would happen. Now, I know what you're thinking. You are a little surprised that Independence Day for America is something that is so highly celebrated by Native Americans. I was thinking that. Well, there's a reason for that. Okay. So, history time. Uh, I'm ready. We're going to get a little bit into it. Although it states clearly in the First Amendment of the Constitution that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In 1983, the United States government gave the agents of the Federal Office of Indian Affairs the authority to use force, imprisonment, or withholdings of rations, rations that they needed to live, to stop any Native culture from practicing their religious ceremonies, dance, or anything that they deemed immoral or subversive to the federal government's mandated assimilation policy. Doesn't seem fair. Um, Well, I would say mostly everything that happened to the Native Americans is definitely not fair. 
Um, But the assimilation policy was something that was forced upon them. So that meant that they were not allowed to practice their religion or any cultural experiences or ceremonies that they did. Even on their own reservation? Yes. You know, see, this is why history is so important, because this is something that I would have never known. I know. I thought that that would not extend to the reservations. Well, during the policies of forced assimilation, it did extend to the reservations. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So the main practices that were deemed immoral in the eyes of the federal government were um, particular dances, um, the sun dance, which involved the community getting together for prayer and healing. So, I mean, it's it's sad, the things that they got rid of and or didn't allow. And that's not to say that more things were not allowed or were prohibited or taken away. But these are just the specific things that the federal government actually wrote down that they spoke out against. So that's the sun dance, the scalp dance and the war dance. But these religious and cultural ceremonies were part of the Native Americans tribes culture. And of course, every culture is going to vary from the various tribes that existed within North America. And the problem was this culture that the Native Americans had, it was dying because of the forced assimilation. So in a desperate grab to keep their culture alive, the tribes did something that was very smart. They began to celebrate on all of the American national holidays. Oh, you mean like continue their... All of their ceremonies and their practices, but they just did so around American holidays. For example, the 4th of July. Got it. Okay. So See, now this all makes sense. Yes. <laughs> so, and this is something that's carried on through generations, obviously, um, because that's the only thing that is keeping Native American culture alive is generationally sharing your, your culture and ideas. So the traditional dances, feasts, and artifacts would be brought out and practiced on especially Independence Day under the guise of celebrating America. And that is something that the federal government loved. It was done basically in retaliation of the suppression. The federal government didn't stop these celebrations, rather encouraged them because they saw it as a way for the tribes to learn patriotism. And... This is a tradition that, of course, like I said before, carried on to the present day. In fact, many Native American celebrations now correspond with American, quote unquote, um, holidays, so they'd be able to continue the legacy of their people. It was done for survival purposes, not just for themselves physically, but emotionally and spiritually. So that's just, you know, a little piece of history that's important for understanding why there were so much celebrations, because most people would think, oh, my God, why are they celebrating the 4th of July on a Native American reservation? And, and that this is the reason why. Well, good to know. Thank you. You're welcome. So on the day of July 3rd, the entire Harris family was preparing for the powwow and Rose's wedding. So there's a lot going on because not only do they have the celebrations on the 4th of July, but they have the wedding on the 5th. Rose said that she remembered that day in particular because Hannah was wearing, you know, kind of what she always wore um, and her go-to shoes that she always put on were her Nike flights. She loved those and she always wore them no matter what outfit she was wearing. 
and Hannah was talking to her about what she would wear to the wedding. She was trying to, she was kind of choosing between different dresses. So, so she was excited. Yes, very much so. And she was really excited to be there for her sister that day. And the plan was that Hannah was going to help her set up in the morning before everything. So they had kind of established that plan on the third. Rose also knew that Hannah was very excited for the following day because she loved to dance. And she knew her sister needed to kind of blow off some steam because it had been a bit overwhelming being a new mother, as I'm sure it always is. And it was just a really exciting time for the family. Nice moments, big events, everything seemed perfect. So on the afternoon of July 4th, excitement was in the air about the party. Melinda, Hannah's mother, had come home from work at about 2.30 p.m., and at that time the celebrations had already begun. She could hear music from outside her house. She told Hannah that she was tired and that she was going to take a nap before she joined in in the festivities, but she didn't want to miss the fireworks. So she asked her daughter if she would come by and wake her up for the fireworks, and then the two of them could go there together. Hannah agreed to do so, and then packed Jeremiah up in the car and drove to where the party was happening. Now these celebrations were lively and fun, but they were dry. The Northern Cheyenne Reservation is a dry one, so there's no alcohol allowed. Okay, I see. I didn't even know that either. Dry. Dry, yeah. I I love when they use the dry... Yes. Well, that's actually something that's obviously not common where we live in the Northeast in the United States, but it is something that's common in the South and the Midwest, having dry towns or even counties. You would not survive there. I would not survive there. No. (laughs) You know, after a long day of work, you know, every once in a while. It's all I think about in the drive home sometimes. (laughs) That's a problem. It does sound like a problem. (laughs) I would not survive. So the Northern Cheyenne Reservation is a dry one, and the purpose of this is to stop the widespread problem of alcohol abuse within the Native American population in the U.S., which exists as a result of transgenerational trauma, poor health care, poverty rates, and the list goes on and on. However, according to a study completed by the University of Montana School of Journalism, the reservation, as sadly many do, even though it's a dry reservation, struggles with a growing meth problem. And kids have also found a way around the dry issue by diluting certain medications that have alcohol content in it with water. And they call it Cheyenne Champagne. Okay. I feel like teenagers will always kind of find a way around something like that. And that's how they do it. But a, a larger problem is the problem with drugs. And the problem with drugs exists because this reservation and others around the country have very high unemployment rates. The unemployment rate is actually over 70%. That's a lot. It's extremely high. And there are no things to do or after-school activities for students to participate in. And it's just very, very bad. And very little assistance is provided in helping the children and the adults, whether when they develop addiction problems. And that's something that's really common. And I think that the Northern Cheyenne Reservation is trying to make it a dry area to help with that. But of course, there's still unfortunately a drug problem there. And I could go on and on about this issue. 
And we actually do a pretty deep dive in the addiction problems within Native American communities in the United States when we did the Patreon episode about the Red Lake school shooting. I do recall. Yeah. And I think I, I think I mentioned it then, but I'll mention it now. I had a friend of mine that I used to work with. Um, he was an iron worker and we used to work at this on the same uh, job site. And he was in, I don't know which reservation, I, I don't remember, but he would, he, he drove a, like a camper, kind of like, like an RV, like we're like with living quarters, like a motorhome. Okay. And he would drive that from the reservation to the job site and then stay on the job site. And he would do it because he said that he told everyone, you know, he was kind of like an open book and he would just say, yeah, like I, you know, there's no work there and I got lucky here. So I stay here in my RV and I send my money there or something like that. And that he provides for his whole family. Yeah. So the guy worked his butt off. So like, it was it was nice. It was just like very different, like you know, to see that you know. And it's very interesting yeah. to. I I feel like in general, sometimes Americans are lacking knowledge of what life is like on a Native American reservations and and the way of life and the problems that plague them. And it is interesting to hear about different cultures that exist within and around your community, and you don't even realize it. It's true, and it was really cool because one time he looked at me randomly and goes, "You know what you need." And I go, what? He goes, you need a dream catcher. And like, he was like, my family makes them here, have one. And it was, it was huge. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. I was like, thank you. That's really cool. Dream catchers are awesome. They're pretty cool. So, and the reason why I mentioned this all, so there's a reason for my tangent. Don't worry, guys. The fact that this reservation is a dry reservation will come into play during this case later. Okay. So the night of the party Hannah's uncle had seen her trying to unwind at the event, have fun, something that's difficult to do, as you would imagine, with a 10-month-old on your hip. So he offered to watch Jeremiah for the night so Hannah could enjoy herself. She was very grateful for him for doing that, and she thanked him. She was close with him, and she trusted him and his family to watch over her son, and it was something that they'd done before. So when he left with Jeremiah, he said that he saw Hannah, And she was having a great time, dancing to a live band. She was getting really into it. And he saw everyone around her cheering her on. He said that she'd been wearing a piece of caution tape and that it had been draped across her, kind of like a sash, like a prom queen sash or a beauty queen, something like that. Okay. So the following morning, Hannah was supposed to have picked up her son from her uncle's, obviously, But also, she was supposed to have helped her sister prepare for the wedding that she had that day. She did neither. She'd not come home that night. She was 21 years old, so she was entitled to have fun and to be an adult. But her mother was slightly worried because they had the wedding that day. When Hannah's uncle dropped Jeremiah off with Melinda, he told them that Hannah had really been having fun the night before. And this made Melinda and Rose assume that maybe Hannah had gone over a friend's house to sleep over and maybe she that's what she was still doing, like sleeping off the partying that she had done. Because, of course, she didn't have Jeremiah, so she could also sleep, something that also you don't get much of when you have a young child. I'm not looking forward to that. (laughs) So they figured that she would just come a little bit later to the wedding, like... They were like, maybe she's not helping us set up, but she's going to show up at the reception. 
So later that afternoon at the reception, Rose couldn't focus on the fact that even though it was supposed to be the happiest day in the world for her, it hadn't been because she was worried the whole day that something was wrong with Hannah. She knew that her sister would not have missed her wedding, and she couldn't help but glance around the room every few minutes looking for her, hoping that she would show up. I mean, that's pretty crazy because we're not talking about not showing up to work for a day, and even that could be weird depending on what you do, but that is odd. To not show up for your sister's wedding, I think, is a pretty big deal. Yes, I agree. I mean, if, if your sister didn't come to your wedding or she just didn't show up, you would be con- extremely worried and concerned. Right, especially because there's roles within that she, that Hannah was supposed to play that day. Right. How big is the population there? Under 2,000. Okay. Yeah, because I'm just trying to think, like, uh, like, that means literally everyone knows each other. Yes. Yes. Okay. It is smaller population size than some high schools. <laughs> that is true, actually. <laughs> so Rose came to the conclusion that she needed to end her reception early. And understanding that his wife was really upset by this, Rose's new husband agreed. They were concerned about Hannah and they wanted to begin searching for her. Rose made an announcement thanking everyone for coming, but she really needed to go and look for her sister. Hannah's immediate and extended family were the ones who began to search for her first. They drove all over the reservation looking for her. They mainly had their eyes peeled for her car. And finally, they found it, close to a creek in the community. It was parked in a desolate area just off of a road. And as her family approached, especially her mother and sister, they were terrified. Up until that point, I think they thought that there was a chance that maybe she was just off with a friend or maybe she had met a guy But now here was her car in the middle of a grassy area off the side of the road. And when they looked in, she wasn't inside. So where was she? That's when someone made a suggestion that made their blood run cold. They suggested that they check the trunk just in case. That would have every hair on my body standing up and I probably wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. Because you don't know what you're going to find in there. If You know. No. Because I think for two reasons. First, you're coming to the realization that something seriously might be wrong with her. And second, if if something did happen like that, would you want to find her? Yeah, it's pretty bad. But I mean, you do have to, like, turn every stone over, you know? Correct. So in a very tense moment, family members stood by the trunk as someone opened the driver's door and popped the trunk. It was empty. She wasn't there either. So it was then that the family reached out to the community. As you can imagine, on a reservation that size, everybody knew everyone. So they kind of knew who to call. And they were also, because it is a reservation, under federal jurisdiction. And it really does take forever in their experience for the feds to react to community requests, especially something like this, like a missing persons report. Because they would say, wait some time, but they didn't want to do that. So as you can imagine, because these communities, these reservations, they are used to inaction. Sometimes they have reservation police who will respond to things. Or sometimes they just have people that they know they can reach out to in the community. Yeah, no, that's that's good. But I, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. 
I will say, though, I find it a little odd. Like, how is this reservation policed? Is it through their own police force? Or is it... The Bureau of Indian Affairs. Okay. Now, do they work so in... So that's... Con- Wait, go ahead. Sorry. Do they work in conjunction with a Reservation local- police? Yeah, or like a local police department? Uh, this reservation, it's just the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So that's the only federal government that kind of polices it in conjunction with the FBI when they need to. But there is no, like, reservation police. They do have volunteer forces like volunteer firefighters and that's actually the person that they call the chief of the fire department within the reservation because he's kind of the one people go to when they need help with various things okay i mean that's understandable because i feel like if it wasn't police good enough if somebody wants to get somebody like if let's say they have some sort of vendetta or they just want to commit some sort of crime They're an easy target. The whole community is. The whole reservation. You just, like, hit upon one of the biggest problems plaguing reservations and indigenous people in the United States, specifically indigenous women. Right. Because I feel like if someone knows that or someone, maybe someone even living in the community knows how slow they are to react. And how bad the investigations are if they even take place. Right. They that, know they can get away with a lot of stuff. That's kind of where I'm going with this. I, I think it's kind of insane because... It, it's, uh, it's a crisis. Yeah, it is. It really is. It is. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. Okay. So they reach out to the fire chief. His name is Ed Joyner. The man knows the roads and the entire land the best. And Joyner is going to spearhead a massive search for Hannah and then involve as many members of the community as he can. So they really get a good search party started. Joyner was able to request his use of their helicopters, so the community searched the reservation area by land and air for hours, but nothing was to be found. After the initial search, Joyner is going to reach out to the FBI and request assistance, stating that they had a missing 21-year-old mother who had not shown up to her own sister's wedding, Um, Her car had been found abandoned, so this all heavily implies that something bad had happened. So it wasn't just your typical, somebody's missing, they could be out with friends. These are all, like, red flags, as you would say. They are red flags, and she she wouldn't have left her kid either. Exactly, especially because she's breastfeeding her son. Oh, well, that's that's actually pretty important to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then definitely not, because she knows that she would have to be back for that. Exactly. Yeah. So the FBI actually did react quickly to the request for assistance. Under the FBI, the search parameters widened, and the search teams were given additional manpower and resources. During this search that continued into the following day, the sash of caution tape that Hannah had been seen wearing by her uncle the last time she was seen was found caught in a barbed wire fence that lined a property that had not been too far away from where Hannah's car had been found abandoned. Okay. Well, I mean, that's kind of good to know. She might have gone there herself or maybe was kind of pulled in that direction. Right. So Hannah's friends, who had been questioned, confirmed that that had been the sash that one of them ripped from the firework display. 
They knew that it was the sash that Hannah was wearing because her friend specifically tied it a certain way with a a special knot, and she knew that that was the knot that she had tied. The search was then focused around the area where the sash was found, and it was that area that the FBI and the community searchers were confident that they might find some answers because, you know, finally they had something. Across the road from where the sash had been found, tangled into barbed wire, sat an abandoned trailer park. Up until that point, the search teams had just been covering the open plains, but now they had something specific to search, and it gave them a little bit of a clearer direction, and it also inspired hope that they would find something that would lead them to Hannah. So now they're going to search the abandoned trailer park. It's interesting that you have just an abandoned trailer park just there. It's the very middle. common in oh, these areas. Okay. You know, I will say, though, that having a structure or an area like that, though, I feel could breed, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, like the undesirables or like where drug activity might take place. Right. I'm thinking that because I don't know why, but when you said that it was a dry re- uh, reservation, I feel like that could also kind of what happened in this country where alcohol was banned here and it created kind of like a crime syndicate kind of thing. And I'm thinking here, is that what's maybe going on? Or if not that, right, then could drugs be more rampant now because you took out the alcohol? Yes, there's a very big meth problem Yeah, because there is no alcohol so sometimes taking one thing away leads to other types of addictions right so i'm what i'm trying to get at with that property or that area that could be a meetup place that could be like an like 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 an exchange you know of of like money to product or whatever right it would be the perfect place for cover or a location for addicts to be right exactly so at this point also the bureau of indian affairs is involved or the bia So the search team is going to spread out and take both sides of the highway. One side of the highway is the trailer park. And the trailer park had trailers and cars in various states of neglect. It was eerily like a ghost town. People searched in and out of the trailers where the residents seemed to have just up and left one day, abandoning all hope. They searched in every cabinet, beneath every bed, They moved around furniture that had layers of dust and grime on it. And after hours of searching, someone yelled that they had found something. A man had just searched a trailer, and it was when he was leaving, he saw the edge of something beneath the trailer. And it didn't look like something that had been there for a long time because it looked clean, unlike everything else around it. So he bent down to get a better look, to see what it was. It was a shoe, a shoe with a bright Nike symbol prominently displayed. Rose confirmed that it was the same Nike flights that her sister always wore in the same size, her signature shoe. But why was there only one and why was it in the trailer park? That is odd, but it could be that she's maybe fighting with an assailant. Or True. Lost being, a shoe in a be, fight. Exactly. Being dragged and the shoe came off. I mean, she loved those shoes. Right. You know? She was wearing them that night. Yeah. So at this point, it is apparent that there has been foul play. Her car, the sash, and now her shoe. 
In order to help assist with the connection to the local community, the FBI investigators specifically asked for the involvement of Special Agent John Grinzel. And they asked him to join the team because he really had a good sense of the community and he could give them some insights and connections into the community because he himself was Cheyenne. Oh, see, that's good. Because yes. like, it's good to have like a bridging of the... like. The- the uh, agencies. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I couldn't talk there for a second. I don't okay. Grinzel is going to talk to Ed Joyner. He knew that Joyner had a good understanding of the community. He learned that Joyner actually knew the area of the trailer parks quite well because his wife's family had owned the land. He told him that sometimes drifters or drug addicts would stay in the trailers and they would routinely have to check them to make sure that they weren't there. Grinzel was convinced that something had taken place there. From the car to the sash to the shoe, it was almost like a trail of breadcrumbs leading them to the location of the crime scene, the abandoned trailer park. And he really wanted to know what happened at that trailer park. So he's going to call in crime scene units to see if any other useful information or evidence could be collected from within the trailer park, specifically the trailer um, which her shoe was found underneath. This crime scene, or potential crime scene, was a nightmare for the techs. It was messy and dirty, and collecting evidence or even getting prints would be painstakingly exhaustive. This crime scene, or potential crime scene, was a nightmare for the tax. It was messy and dirty, and collecting evidence or even getting prints would be a painstakingly exhaustive task. But they completed it. Unfortunately, it had been all for nothing, because not one piece of trace evidence was found. While all of this was happening, the Harris family was dealing with another crisis, Jeremiah. He had been a breastfed baby, and by that time, the milk that Hannah had stored in the freezer was gone, and the 10-month-old was not keeping formula down, and eventually he just refused it. He had not eaten, and he was rapidly losing weight. And at a loss of what to do, uh, Melinda reached out to the Facebook group of the reservation and asked for help. She said that her daughter was missing and now her grandson was starving. Did anyone have breast milk to spare? Other breastfeeding mothers that lived in Lame Deer, because word about the need for breast milk spread like wildfire, and women, they answered it. They were delivering milk to Melinda's house, and they were offering Melinda to bring Jeremiah over to their house if he wasn't taking the bottle. So, I mean, that's really nice. It's amazing yeah. that the community got together like that. And again, you know, it's just another example of how I, I think the community is so used to relying upon itself for help. And that's why they're so eager to do so. So that leads us to the fifth day of the search. Desperate to find Hannah, Rose, Melinda, and other family members gathered at Hannah's grandmother's house. There they were going to perform a ceremony that they believed would call back Hannah's spirit so she would return home and they could find her. That day, the team that Ed Joyner had been searching with um, were just about to call it quits. Their tireless efforts had yielded nothing and it was beginning to get dark 
and it had been raining, which made searching the plains especially difficult. The plan, as the sun set, was to call it and begin again in the morning. But as the search party was driving away down the gravel path, they had to move slowly, and they had been methodically searching using a grid method, but to get out of the area, they had to drive past a location where they had not yet searched. And as they were driving slowly, because it's a dirt road, with their windows open, some of the men caught a smell in the air. And these men knew the smell of animals, and they knew that what they had caught a smell of was nothing that was natural to the area. Joyner turned the headlights of his truck towards the direction that they believed the smell was coming from. And through the grass, in the glow of the headlights, a body could be seen. I don't know what you believe or, you know, if you believe in anything at all. But just as the family was completing the ceremony for the return of Hannah's spirit, they received a knock at the door. And it was law enforcement informing them that Hannah's body had been found. I mean, that is pretty crazy. Yeah. So unfortunately, they had been expecting that news, but it still didn't change the devastation that it caused. And actually hearing it out loud and having it confirmed, Melinda and Rose recalled that when they heard it, they both fell to their knees and sobbed. The search for Hannah was over. As soon as the body was found, the FBI and the BIA were summoned to the scene. Hannah's body had been found down a slight embankment on the side of a road, actually near a rodeo site. Because of the time of year and the fact that the temperatures had been consecutively in the 90s, her body was badly decomposed. She was laying face down with her arms stretched out in front of her. She was completely naked except for her pants, which were pulled down around her knees, and one shoe, the other Nike flight. This was clearly a homicide and a potential sexual assault based on how the body had been left. Before an autopsy was to be performed, Melinda and Rose were asked to identify Hannah's body. It was obvious that they were trying to do everything they could to mask the smell, but it was impossible. Rose would later say that seeing her like that hurt more than they ever knew that they could hurt because they knew that Hannah had died in agony. Because of the advanced decomposition, it made the autopsy very difficult. It had looked as if there had been a sexual assault, but it was unable to be determined because any potential evidence that could have been found was lost to degradation of the samples. The medical examiner was not able to determine a clear cause of death. However, this was deemed a homicide. So now that this investigation switched from a missing persons one to a homicide, the investigators from the FBI and the BIA wanted to speak with everyone who was with Hannah the night of her disappearance again, but now under the pretense of a murder. It was clear from the perspective of the observers that Hannah was having a wonderful time, She was young and beautiful, and she'd been receiving a lot of attention that night from a number of people. But everyone said that there was one man in particular that she'd been spending a lot of time with. His name was Lyle Holmes. A witness stated that she had seen Hannah get into Lyle's car, 
but had only seen them for a brief moment. Now, in interviews, Ed Joyner said that the community within the reservation was very small and tight, and word got around fast. So when word got around fast around the reservation, they call it the moccasin telegram. Though the community calls it that? Yeah. Okay. So word had gotten out that the agents of the BIA were looking for Lyle. So he wanted to get ahead of this. So he went to where they had established headquarters of the investigation. They were only there temporarily, and there's not a lot of resources, and there's not a police force there. So they actually had kind of like a series of large tents set up, and that's where they were doing the investigation out of. So Lyle admitted that for a brief time, Hannah had gotten into his car that night, but then she had left it. The BIA was later able to confirm this with other witnesses at the scene. He said after a while, the two parted. She didn't go anywhere with him that night. And at that point, the BIA and the FBI had been waiting for surveillance tapes because they wanted to be able to track Hannah's actions. And it was clear that Lyle was telling the truth because Lyle was not the last person that Hannah was seen with that night. Okay, that's interesting. I was just going to say, but he's the last person. But Nope. Okay. Based on the video footage that they had been able to obtain, Hannah, as most members of the community did, continued the night at Jimstown Bar. So Jimstown Bar was a really big place for everybody to go. And that's where they finished the night because that's where they were able to, you know, hang out and drink after they had had a great time. This bar, which was always busy and frequented by those on the reservation because it was located just yards away from the border. Okay, that's funny. That's a smart business model. It is. So it was clear that Hannah had wanted to have fun that night. She finally had time to go out because she knew Jeremiah was with her uncle. And this was really the first time she'd gone out since her son was born because she was, although she had a lot of help from her family, she's still a single mother. And she's young. She's only 21. So now the investigators had footage from the bar that night. And from several angles, they would be able to track her movements and see what she did. But this is something that was going to be kind of difficult because it was a really busy night at the bar. So they really had to make sure they were looking for Hannah within all the footage. So it took some time, but they were able to identify Hannah. She could be seen moving around the bar, but mainly she had been talking to and drinking with a man and a woman. The three of them left the bar at the same time, but they all walked away from the view of the camera and law enforcement was not able to see which direction they went in after they left the bar. After showing the tape to other people who had been at the bar that night as well, the two people that Hannah had been drinking with were identified as Gina Rowland and Garrett Wada. Okay. You know you know what I was just thinking about? What? Okay. I don't know why. I can't even explain my thought process on this one. I'm going to try. But for some reason... I keep thinking about, you know, that one case, uh, I think we covered it or we talked about it. I'm, I'm actually drawing a blank. This is a long time ago, but it was when the guy and, and his wife or girlfriend, they kidnapped the woman and then put her in a box and she was like underneath yes. the, the yes. bed, which is horrifying. Okay. 
what if this bar is right on the border, you said. So I'm thinking, what if somebody in that bar has done this before and uses the bar as a way of getting people from the reservation to the other side of the border? Like in, in like in the past, like maybe they, like, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, that's like kind of like they're... Like, like that's their stomping them out ground. Of the reservation, maybe, or I don't know. It just for some reason I'm thinking like. Well, there's not like a clear like it's not like a border border. You oh, know okay. what I mean? Like, like it's just like I'm picturing like a legit ended. border. No, there's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't. I'm uninformed, but I'm trying okay. to piece it together. It's okay. Here. It's not like like a country's like border it would just okay. be like the end of the reservation land. Like like you know when a town ends. Yes. And it's like. Welcome to Riverdale. You know what, though? With everything that I just said, it would have to be somebody that knew the area very well, though. Yes, but I think that you might have a point, too, because this location, because it is a dry reservation, everyone would have to leave here to go drink. Obviously, people are more vulnerable when they drink. So it would be if someone was and we'll get into the stats soon, but um, kidnapping indigenous women this would be the place to go to do so and obviously to get away with it because it seems to be easier than the other general population okay so i think you're on to something i just wanted to like let you know that it wasn't like a border a border okay i don't i don't know no no it's good that you're i'm becoming informed there's though. no this such is thing good. as a stupid question that's what i tell my students well I'm, I'm, they do find them sometimes but. sometimes <laughs> yeah. yeah i've done it So just as quickly as news spread about law enforcement wanting to talk to Lyle Holmes, it spread just as fast that Hannah had been seen on surveillance footage with Gina and Garrett. Shortly after the news had gotten out, Hannah's mother was at the grocery store when she ran into Gina Rowland. Oh, okay. So now Melinda is face to face with Gina Rowland. And because she needed to know answers, Melinda grabbed Gina by the arm and said, you were the last one to be seen with my daughter. Like You have to go talk to the police. So she drives her to the headquarters that had been set up. Once Gina gets there, she does talk to the BIA agents and the FBI agents. And she said that they all had spent time together um, at the celebration within the reservation and then also at gyms. They'd all been drinking throughout their time at the bar. And in the early morning hours, she said that they decided to leave and they got into Hannah's car. Hannah was supposed to be giving them a ride back to the abandoned trailer park because that's where they had been squatting at the time. Okay. I don't like I don't like this. I am putting red flags all over it. As many little, little places as I can. There's a lot of red flags. They're flying. They're, They're flying. flying I'm literally throwing them like like <laughs> darts. Um yeah, that that's very odd because now this is somebody that is um this is the someone that uh was the last to see them. Yes. They've had interactions already between the the uh the two of them and now they were supposed to get in the car with her. Yeah, and this is also an older couple, so I do find it to be a little bit of a, an odd match. My mind is like spinning out of control just thinking about this. Why am I getting the feeling that this couple's responsible for it? Well, hold on. There's something interesting that Gina Rowland says to the agents. Okay. 
So Hannah was supposed to be giving them a ride to the abandoned trailer park. Um, and she wasn't sure how exactly it happened, but kind of all of a sudden there was just another man in the car with them. So, so, so someone was, else got in. So it was the couple and then some random guy. Hannah was driving. Okay. Gina was in the front seat. Garrett was in the back. And then a, another man got into the back seat. Nobody knew who he well, was? Well, it seemed like Hannah knew who the person was because she didn't object to it. And they were kind of like in the dark about it. As you can imagine, because everyone was drinking, things were kind of a little fuzzy and like, oh, whatever. But yes. Another the, man gets in the car. The only thing is that where the car is, does it make sense that they all got in and then were dropped off at the trailer park? It was at gyms. They were all at gyms. So right. this man had been at the bar, but okay. then was getting a ride with them too. But right, back but, into the reservation. Right. But where we found the car is that close to where they would have walked to the abandoned trailer park. It's a very far walk from where the car was found to where the trailer park is. Okay, because I'm trying to think like, okay, well, did they take it to where they needed to and then they drove it back and then walked back? No, the car was definitely abandoned somewhere. Okay. So this man was apparently getting a ride too. And when asked to describe the man, Gina said that he was very large. He was wearing a fedora and that the one thing that she remembered was that he smelled very badly. He had a bad smell to him. Gina said that they all got back to the trailer park at around 1.30 a.m. After that, Hannah dropped them off, said goodbye. Then she got back into the car and she drove off with the man in the fedora. It's a very odd description, don't you think? Well, I mean, she didn't really know because he was in the back seat. I think that Garrett Wada would have a better description of him because... As she's in the front, you wouldn't really turn around, especially she said the man made her feel uncomfortable um, and that he was really big. So it's really kind of all she could see in the darkness. I just think it's a little bizarre when you have a, t- a reservation of 17, whatever, under 2,000 people. And that, you don't know you who someone know who is. It is. Yeah. I just think that a fedora description of a big man, well, that could be anybody. The fedora, I mean, that's, I mean that is a weird... Uh, it's very descriptive for no reason. It could I, be someone from yeah. a reservation that was close by or someone who's visiting family especially because it is a time of celebration that's often when family come to visit or it could be a way of distracting investigators into not putting the focus on them oh interesting because i'm just thinking it's a weird description okay he smells bad okay well everyone's drinking and carrying on so i'm sure dancing all night so people do smell bad i don't know it's just a weird description So the new focus of the investigation was finding out the identity of this mysterious third man. Who was he? Where did he come from? And why was he so comfortable getting into Hannah's car? And finally, why did she allow it? It wasn't going to be easy, but they were going to have to go back and watch the tapes again. Now they had to look for anyone who seemed to be in the general vicinity of Hannah. Also, this man may not have been wearing his hat inside. So it wasn't just like they could go back and look for the guy with the hat. And besides that, the only physical description that Gina gave was the fact that he was a big guy. So it's going to be hard to identify him on the surveillance cameras from Jim's. You got to ask the bartender. 
Because the bartenders remember all. The bartender all. always knows. You know, I don't know if that's like a like a law and order type of thing or if that's <laughs> real. Like bartenders obviously are serving people all night. They're very observant. They have to be. They're the know? only sober ones in the room, kind of, well, basically. Right. Pretty much, right? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Depending on where you are. Um, But no, it's true, though. Like, maybe if you ask the bartender, they would maybe know if they saw someone, let's say, for example, abnormally large or larger than the others. Yeah. You know? Maybe they saw him take his, you know, fedora off and hang it up or something. You yes. never know. Ugh. So while they were doing that, about a week after the murders... Hannah's family was laying her to rest. Law enforcement was there, of course, to pay their respects and also keep an eye out on the crowd because, as we know, it is not uncommon for the killer to integrate themselves into the investigation or even to show up at the funeral. The family was very emotional that day, as you could imagine. They had lost Hannah at 21 years old, and they were devastated that Jeremiah would grow up without his mother and that he would never get to know her as they had. And the highly charged emotionality of it all was only increased at the arrival of Hannah's ex-boyfriend and Jeremiah's father. You beat me to it. I was I was going to mention, what about the ex-boyfriend that was abusive? Right? That's, That's That is interesting. Hmm? So the couple had broken up because he had been really abusive towards Hannah, And, of course, like I said in the beginning of this episode, she didn't want that in her or her son's life. Melinda had a feeling that he was going to show up. And in case he did, she brought paperwork that she had gotten from the BIA that stated that she had temporary custody of Jeremiah, so he was not allowed to take his son. Now, even though she had that paperwork, she didn't trust him. So she told all of the family that had been you know, helping her with Jeremiah as she was doing everything that she needed to do the day of her daughter's funeral, she told them, make sure that his father does not hold him. He's not allowed to hold his son because she was nervous that he would just take Jeremiah with him. She also told the BIA and FBI agents that he was there that day because she knew that, of course, they wanted to have a conversation with him. But it was difficult to track him down because he didn't live on the Cheyenne Reservation, but another one that had been close by. So they approach him and they have a conversation with him. He agrees to have this conversation. The goal of law enforcement was to find out if he had been the man in the fedora. So... Hannah's ex-boyfriend said that it had not been him. He had not been at Jim's that night. He actually was out of state. He had been in South Dakota on and around the 4th of July. So they thanked him for speaking with him and he paid his respects and left to the relief of the family. He didn't want to cause problems. It seemed like he really did just want to pay the respects to the mother of his child. The days following the funeral were busy for the BIA agents who worked to corroborate the story that Hannah's ex-boyfriend had given them, and they were able to. He had been in South Dakota during the time of Hannah's murder. So after the funeral and determining whether the father of Jeremiah's alibi was solid, law enforcement really did not have anywhere to go. 
They had not been able to determine if there had been a man there that night at Jim's that matched the description that Gina Rowland had given. What would help them would be if they could find a suspect and then use the video to see if he had been there that night. I mean, that makes sense. So the weeks passed by. And in that time, some things had happened. This often happens with cases, unfortunately. A local man was saying that he had been involved with the murders. He'd gotten drunk and he was saying that he had something to do with it. So obviously word got around and people that he had told this story to when he was drunk called law enforcement. And when he was questioned about it, he quickly admitted that he had been lying and he also had a solid alibi. So he was just trying to sound, I don't know, I don't know what he was trying to sound like, but this often happens where people try to take credit for uh, missing persons or murders because it makes them sound tough. I don't know. I find that the most ridiculous thing ever. Number one, you're impeding an investigation. Not, you know, you could be leading it into another direction and wasting resources. That's one. Two, I find that weird. What kind of character of person is going to say, you know what? I might have drank a little too much last night and killed somebody. Like, what? Or what kind of characters <laughs> are you hanging out with that would impress them? Well, that too. You know, you're right. Like, what? That makes no sense. Get new friends. I think I think you need to, uh, you know. It's just weird when people do that. But I, it, well, I it think it's weird to happens. insert yourself. When you insert yourself like that, it's, it's kind of like there's really no reason. Plus, you're putting a lot of heat on yourself as well. Yeah, why would you want to possibly go to jail? I don't want to go to jail. Do you want to go to jail, Ken? Never, never. Me neither. I even returned the cart to the grocery store. That's what I'm saying. Remember the one time you answered the door for the cop that was inquiring about the ring footage? Yes. And you were like, oh my God, a cop. Hello. Hi, how are you? I thought about every bad thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, you were literally thinking about the time you used to steal candy. No, I stop saying that. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I... (laughs) I was you know in middle school. You know, they're going to want context now, you know. I they're know. Gonna, you're going to have to tell the story. One day I will. Actually, I think we did it on uh, Patreon. I think we did tell the story. Well, then they're going to have to go there. So now to speak to a larger picture here. Hannah's family, because the investigation seemed to be going completely nowhere, was beginning to get frustrated. So we spoke in another one of our Patreon episodes about the epidemic facing indigenous women. And that was in our episode about Savannah Greywind from North Dakota. But we've never discussed it here on our regular feed. So there are just some statistics that I wanted to share with you from the organization Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women. Indigenous women and girls are murdered at a rate that is 10 times higher than all other ethnicities. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women. More than four out of five Indigenous women have experienced violence. That's 84.3% of Indigenous women experiencing violence. More than half of Indigenous women, 56%, will experience sexual violence. More than half of Indigenous women have been physically abused by their intimate partners. And about 48% have been stalked in their lifetime. Indigenous women are 1.7 times more likely than an Anglo-American woman to experience violence and two times more likely to be raped and three times more likely to be murdered. Yeah, I think it speaks to the environment over there as far. And what I mean by that is just police force, 
maybe the, the lack of the lack of presence. right the lack of you know security maybe there um and then also just the knowledge maybe of other people that you know they know the area they know how to get around under the radar I, I don't know. It's really sad, though, and it speaks to the problems that they're facing there. Yeah, I was watching um, a documentary. Um, I'll name it in the show notes once about missing and murdered indigenous women. And within the documentary, they said, we'd love to give you an investigation discovery show, uh, a documentary where there's going to be an ebb and flow of an investigation and a, make it a whodunit. But we can't. Because the missing persons cases and the murders of these women aren't even investigated. So we can't even explain something to you. Yeah, it's just really sad. And it, it's just sad because this is a, uh, a community and a culture that has been failed in this country repeatedly and continues to be. And that's why there's so many transgenerational problems within them because they're dealing with the trauma and this crisis right now. That's really what it is. It's a crisis. So I'm going to include the full report completed by the organization. And when or if you read it, you'll understand that this really is a pressing issue that needs to be discussed further within this country. And in addition to indigenous women being more susceptible to violence and murder, there are often problems with communication because of jurisdiction. For example, according to the Native Woman Wilderness, as of 2016, the National Crime Information Center has reported 5,712 cases of missing American Indian and Alaskan Native women and girls. However, the Department of Justice Missing Persons Database only reported 116 of those crimes. It's definitely not on par where with where it should be. No, yeah. it, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, you're missing 5,600 crimes. Yep. So they cite that lack of communication combined with jurisdictional issues between state, local, federal, and tribal law enforcement make it nearly impossible to begin the investigative process. That's definitely something that our government needs to work on. But further to that point, I want to talk about Montana specifically, because it obviously is prevalent to this case. According to the documentary, and this is the documentary where they set, like I mentioned it before, um, murder in Bighorn, Montana, obviously. Um, Montana has one of the worst missing or murdered rates for indigenous women in the country. According to a state report from 2017 through 2019, Indigenous people were comprised of about 6.7% of the population, but accounted for 26% of missing persons cases. Yeah, that number is staggering. That's insane. Yeah. That's in the, now that's in the state of Montana. Bighorn County, where the Northern Cheyenne Reservation is, um, and that's where 65% of the population identifies as Native American within the county, it has the worst rate in the state for unsolved cases. Wow. That's so crazy. And as you can imagine, Hannah's family was beginning to feel the stress that the other indigenous families were feeling that also had missing or murdered family members. They believed her case was not investigated properly and resources just were not being used and they weren't being listened to. 
the community held rallies and really got together with the family and tried to help them. They had candlelit vigils and walks, and a lot of people came out to help during the search phases of the investigation, and the family is just overwhelmingly grateful for that assistance that they received, but of course, they're frustrated by these ridiculous jurisdiction issues that was that inhibit the investigation. Yeah, it's definitely a problem. I hope that really does get solved. I mean, it does need to, they need to do something. Some laws are, you know, coming up the pipeline, but I don't, again, it has to be approved. Yeah, it's just sad because so many people and, and, and their family members are affected by these crimes that are taking place to these, to, to the, you know, to these people. It's just, yeah, it's not right. And the statistics don't lie. I mean, they're, like you said, staggering and terrifying. Yeah, they are. But then, weeks later, there was a break in the case that would ease the tensions between law enforcement and Hannah's family. The investigator from the FBI had stopped for coffee at a convenience store on the way into town, and he noticed that they had a surveillance video camera, and it got him thinking that maybe the footage that they had seen from Jim's bar wasn't the only surveillance footage there was. So the agent from the FBI requested the surveillance footage from all the other businesses that would have been on the route that Hannah had taken from the bar to the trailer park. And there was actually a lot of businesses that she passed. Um, She would have had to pass a bank, a convenience store, and just others on like that main strip of road. So the investigators went back and they viewed hours and hours of footage. I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't think of this earlier when they had their surveillance from the from the bar. From the bar. Yeah, you would think that they would have gotten everything on the entire way from point A to point B, yeah. you know? But Well, this is 2013. I feel like it's more common now for them to get surveillance footage like this. So it really hadn't been used to solve a lot of crimes yet. I mean, we we are talking about 10 years ago. It doesn't seem like a long time ago, but I guess it is. Yeah, I mean, think technology. Every year it gets crazier. That's true. So they were finally able to get something from this surveillance footage. Hannah had stopped at the Cheyenne Depot gas station, and the video showed her pulling up at around 1.30 a.m. She pulled up to pump number eight. And then she got out of the car with Gina Rowland and went into the store. The two came out with a few items and then got back into the vehicle. As she drove off, lights illuminated the car, and you were able to see the silhouettes of those inside. Well, remember Gina had said there had been a big man with a fedora in the back seat with Garrett, her common-law husband? Well, there wasn't. I thought so. There was only one man in the backseat of that car. Interesting. Also, I'd like to add that I don't care how drunk you are. I don't even care how, like, how many drugs you've taken. You don't remember going to a store and walking out with possible food items and getting back in a car? I'm sorry. And not seeing the man in the fedora. Come on. Come on. It could be dark. You know what? You could even be blind and still realize that also, you could hear somebody in the car that you don't know. No, no. She knew he was there. <laughs> no, I know. But I'm just trying to say, like, it's it's so ridiculous. Uh, you got out of the car. I think what also is weird is that she kept saying that she felt uncomfortable with this man. Well, if some random guy got into a car with us, I wouldn't leave you alone with him. 
That's also true. I'd have to protect you. <laughs> you protect <laughs> me? Nah. Well, you do protect me. I I think, and I protect you. You're right. So before they went and talked to the couple again, law enforcement wanted to find out more information about them and just what happened in the days after Hannah had gone missing. They questioned people that were close to Garrett and Gina. Not something that would be odd because if you were the last ones to have seen her that night and like people would want to question, you know, people you knew. So this was all under the guise of just like routine follow ups as not to alert them that they were kind of on their trail. You know what I mean? I gotcha. So one of Gina's relatives said that he had let Garrett borrow his car on the 5th of July. Okay. (laughs) And when he came back, he said the car had a very bad odor to it. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere, I think. The FBI and the BIA did everything they could to seize that car immediately. And hours later, they had the back seat of the car removed where the man said that the smell had originated from, and they had it shipped to Quantico for further analysis. When they got the results back, it had been exactly what they expected. Hannah's DNA was on the seat. Busted. Well, now this couldn't get them for murder. What? Odor and DNA could really only get them abuse of a corpse. It doesn't prove murder. Oh, come on. You got to be kidding me. So. Okay. The goal was to arrest them for something. And warrants were put out for Gina Rowland and Garrett Wada, who are now on the run. I mean, come on now. They're on the run for a reason. And listen, this is something that's a little frustrating to me as I was reading the case. I, I understand why Hannah's family was very frustrated because it does seem like there were weeks and weeks of inactivity from all types of all levels of law enforcement. But now I get that the attorneys want more evidence to make a good case for the jury. But I think that a murder indictment, like if they would have brought this to a grand jury, they would have gotten an indictment because the culmination of physical and circumstantial evidence that they had here We've seen people convicted on less. On less. Right. Exactly. So I I find it bizarre that that was the choice that was made. I do, too. I I don't get it. So as the days, weeks, and months go by and no murder charge is brought upon the two people that Hannah's family now knows killed her, they weren't even arrested for abuse of a corpse. So, like, the family's getting frustrated You know who did it. They're on the run. Go after them and charge them with murder. Like, what are you doing here? It's just, it's believed by the family to be not only a lack of action, but a lack of compassion. I think it's disrespectful. Yeah. I I mean, listen, what happened to the, the process of, okay, we have evidence, but we don't have enough to convict but we can certainly attain, you know, get them, bring them back, and, and interrogate them. Well, that's what they're and see trying if they to would do. Maybe crack under pressure, or you would find out something that would maybe they would say something to incriminate themselves. Something. That's what they want to do. They're on the run, but they're not just on the run within the United States. They're most likely on other reservations, which become 
becomes a jurisdictional problem. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So what the family does is they keep the pressure up throughout the months of nothing, of inaction. They have signs everywhere. They organize marches to help keep this case alive and ensure that these two monsters don't get away with the murder of Hannah Harris. Now, authorities didn't know the general location of where they were hiding. They think they believed they were staying with family members at separate reservations. Gina, they knew, was in South Dakota, and they believe that Garrett had gone to Wyoming. The BIA and FBI agents had informed the law enforcement there to basically keep an eye out. And if anything happens or if they leave the reservation and they're pulled over or, you know, somebody sees them because there's a a bolo issued for them to arrest them because there was a warrant out for the abuse of a corpse on them. Now, although it did take months, finally, the FBI agent working Hannah's case received a call from a BIA agent in South Dakota. He said that a woman, now this woman is Gina Rowland's sister-in-law, had come up to him and just told him that she had information for him about a murder that had happened in Montana. The woman claimed that she had been drinking with Gina Rowland one night and that she had gotten very drunk and began to talk. She said that she had left Hannah Harris for dead, face down on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Gina then proceeded to tell her the whole story. She said that on that night, when they were in the trailer in the abandoned trailer park, Hannah had passed out in the bedroom and Gina and Garrett were sleeping in the living room. Gina said she woke up in the middle of the night and heard a commotion. She saw Garrett was not next to her. So she went to the bedroom and saw that Garrett was on top of Hannah. He was raping her. And the girl was fighting for her life to get him off of her. Now, this is Gina's account. She said she went to help. And in the process of her trying to help, Hannah, who was fighting for her life, hit her. And apparently this enraged Gina so much that she then started beating Hannah too. And she did so until the point of unconsciousness. Oh, this is going to be just one of those I could already feel that I'm going to be very irate. <laughs> yeah. In reality, we can come to other conclusions, right? Because we have brains. We know that Hannah had somewhere that she could sleep that night, right? She lives with her mom. She has a a beautiful home. Um, But she was probably too tired or maybe even realized once she got to the trailer park, like, maybe I've had a little too much to drink. Maybe I shouldn't be driving home. So she decided to crash at the trailer. She must have felt comfortable enough with the couple to stay the night with them, right? I mean, she had by eyewitness accounts, spent time with Gina and Garrett, both at the celebration, at the reservation, and at Jim's bar. And they were sleeping in separate rooms. When Gina Rowland saw what her common-law husband was doing in the middle of the night, I don't think she got enraged because Hannah swiped at her um, while she was fighting off her rapist. I think she was upset that Garrett was doing that. And she took out a rage on Hannah. I I agree with you, but I'm also going to 
put another part of I, I'm gonna say what I really think happened from yeah. the start of the from the start of the bar. I think that it wasn't that she was too tired or possibly drank too much, but I wouldn't take this off the table if she was drugged through her drink. By the couple. By the couple. Or by Garrett. Someone, one of them, both of them. I don't know. Would they have her drive though? Maybe drugged once they got there? I'm just saying that I let's not let's also keep that as a possibility. You're saying they had bad intentions the whole time. Correct. Because I, I and I don't and, and and I think that if her account is actually what took place there, Can't I be. I don't think that that's the first time that he's tried to do that to somebody else. And most likely it started from the bar to the trailer park. And she's one of those crazy women that think, oh, it's her fault. She's right. She enticed yes. him to do and this. And we've seen that before. So yeah. I think that that's a possibility. Listen, she's 21 years old. I understand she could be a little impressionable, whatever. All, there's so she many factors. Sure. There's so many factors. But I think... She's she's still a mother, and I think that her motherly instinct would have been, regardless of how tired I was, or how you know how drunk I am, or whatever the case may be, I'm going to make it back to my child because I need to do that. I need to be there. I have yeah. I have a wedding tomorrow. I have my kid to look after that I'm I left right. with my family. It doesn't make sense. So I do not think it. She was in control of her actions, and I would I would think it's due to being drugged or something. Right, or too heavily served on purpose. Correct, served yeah. with yeah. Right, exactly. It could have been. They were trying to get her to stay there, or, yeah. or even just him, maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure. That yeah. part I don't know. I like I don't know exactly what inv- kind of involvement she had, uh, you know, except for yeah. her own account here. But I think that that's that was the goal there at the bar. I have to agree with you with that yeah. one. So from that point on, I don't know what the couple was thinking or what their plan had been. But after Garrett had raped Hannah and Gina beat her into unconsciousness, they knew though one thing that she wasn't dead they knew that she was still breathing they proceeded to wrap her in a sheet and drag her out of the trailer and this is when she lost her shoe beneath the trailer like you said she was dragged yeah they laid her face down the following morning gina said in her drunken rant to her sister-in-law that they had come out of the trailer and they realized that hannah had died the way that they had her face down obstructed all of her airways. That's pretty sad. And that makes sense as to why the medical examiner had trouble determining cause of death. Well, there's a lots of things that we cannot figure out due to decomposition. Right. Like, we have but no idea. That would make sense. There would be no um, hemorrhaging because she wasn't choked or, like, purposely asphyxiated. It happened while she was passed out and her airways were obstructed so you're not going to see like damage to cells or anything right and that's why it was difficult to determine cause of death so gina said at that point they went into what she called cover-up mode gina and garrett took hannah's car to dispose of it while they were driving she threw the sash out the window which makes sense they then drove her car about a mile away to muddy creek road where it was found just off of the road And then they walked to Gina's relative's house, 
where they asked him if they could borrow his car. He let them, and they drove back to the trailer park where they picked up Hannah's body so they could dispose of it. And they did. The BIA in South Dakota arrested Gina Rowland and transported her back to Montana. From there, when she got back to Montana, she told them where Garrett Wada was. The BIA agent that had begun the case, John Grinzel, who was Cheyenne himself, personally went to Wyoming to arrest Garrett Wada. It had been nine months since the murder at that point. Hannah's family, although still frustrated with law enforcement, their investigation, their attitudes, um, they were relieved that Hannah's killers would be brought to justice. In April of 2014, Gina Rowland and Garrett Wada both pled guilty to their charges. Rowland received 22 years in prison. And, you know, one of the craziest things about this case is just after the murder, remember Melinda saw Gina Rowland in the grocery store. Yeah. And she took her and said, please tell them what happened with my daughter. Melinda recalls the event and said she was just so desperate for answers and she thought that Gina could help. And she she was so desperate to get her there because she thought Gina would be the answer. And And the whole time Gina didn't act remorseful, upset. At the time, Melinda had Jeremiah with her. So Jeremiah's in the backseat of the car and Gina Rowland's turning around and is like, oh, is this Hannah's baby? He's so cute. You just murdered her daughter and this baby's mother. I do find that pretty bizarre. Yeah. That it's just sad that not only does Melinda have to have all of these images in her head about this traumatic event, but that's just one more, you know? It's it's also the the disconnect to emotion there is very bizarre to me. Very much Which is so. why I think it's this isn't the first time. I'm telling you. Yeah. That this I, you has know, happened. This is bizarre. Yeah. So Garrett Wada received just 10 years. I'm sorry. What? Because he was only considered an accomplice. The sexual assault couldn't be definitively proven because of the degradation of the sample. And Gina Rowland admitted she had been the one to beat her into unconsciousness. Okay, so she... In a way, in an odd way, took respo- more responsibility for what took did. place. Than- yeah. It would have been more time if a sexual assault could have been proven. Right. The murdered and missing indigenous women crisis is something that the country needs to be paying attention to. Hannah's case is a tragedy. She was a beautiful young woman and a wonderful mother. Her legacy will live on because of the efforts of her family, her mother, father, and sisters. In April of 2019, Hannah's Act, also known as House Bill 21, was passed by the Senate. Hannah's Act would create a special position in the State Department of Justice that would investigate all missing persons cases in the state. And $100,000 will be allotted to this position every year. The sponsoring lawmaker stated, that this person who has those skills and relationships to be able to cut through all of the bureaucratic red tape and make sure we do everything we can to find those people who are missing and murdered. So basically they're allowed to act as a go-between through all the jurisdictions because they work for the Department of Justice as a whole. 
Right, because the DOJ holds a lot of power there. So Correct. That's, that's good. Okay. Hannah's act is an important step in moving towards ending the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And if you would like further information on the crisis, I have links posted in the show notes. Recently, May 5th, Hannah's birthday, has been declared National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls. And I just want to end the episode with this piece of information. As of today, there are still 24 active missing or murdered cases of Native Americans on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation. So we can only hope that those families are also able to see justice in their lifetimes. Well, hopefully the Hannah's Act, you know, can... Will help with that. Will help with that, yeah. I, uh, it's just crazy to me that this takes place all the time. And I just feel like not enough was done for so long, you know? And like I said about the other documentary that I watched, I mean, the only way in which they were fortunate was that an investigation was had. Right. I, but my thing is... In a lot of is, cases, there's no investigations yeah. to even discuss. Though I want to I point out, though, that they should be allowed to be afforded the same kind of investigation process as everywhere else. Yeah. I think that that's really important to understand that. Like, yes, there were searches. That that happened fairly quickly. But once again, that wasn't law enforcement in any way. That was the community doing that. Right. Um, you know, like, so it's nice that something's being done about it. But look how many people have either gone missing or, or have been murdered. Uh, you know, so many people before something like this would happen. Like, you know, and, and some sort of change could be done there. But I did... No, also, I something about the car was, was bizarre. I knew that they had to have moved that car. Yeah. Um, I know, random, just throwing it out there. I, I, when I hit on it, I knew when you said that, I was like, I knew it. But it's really sad. But at least some of these families, at least, can, yeah, you know, can move forward. And, and we just hope that there's justice for yeah. the rest. Yeah. Oh, I know it's a super heavy one. It is. But before we go, we just want to say thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. And we got really lucky this month because we got a, well, these two weeks, because we got a lot of new Patreon subscribers. So we just want to say thank you to Carrie Walsh, Charlotte, Megan Peace, Dana Blake, Tress Parita, Kelly Kiger, Courtney Look, Melanie Ridgeway, Tony Shortland, Jenna Crowell. Annie Garcia, Mackenzie Rednor, Chris Delgadillo, Tara, Marissa Rossetti, Jess Powell, Erin Stevenson, Ashley, Marsha Groves, Brianna N., Elise Leardom Gadsen, Leah Fuchs, Allison, another Leah, Lily Burke, Sarah Clinton, Nancy Romeweber, Molly Alt. Karen Schnook, Brandy Garza, Nicole Alford, Elizabeth Becker, Ashley Zerkowski, Casey Jablonski, Fatherless Sheep Nine, Soraya Story, Cindy Y, Tatter, Tony Smith, Brittany Felicello, Linda Bond, 
Joy Serlis, Jessica Garbay, Lisa Heinemann, Amber Hopkins, Erin Casey Stanley, Michelle Fernandez, Ariana Oglesby, Isla Heck upped her pledge and so did Allie Rodriguez Goodman, Rebecca Zinmeyer, and finally Marnie. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon. We hope you're enjoying the extra episodes. And until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys.